Hello, everyone. Welcome to Creation.Live. I'm your host, Trey. In each episode of this show, ICR scientists gather with subject matter experts, apologists, and other special guests to discuss pressing issues, whether that be ICR's current research, something new that's come to light in the scientific community, or something else entirely that ultimately impacts how science points to our creator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope that these conversations are encouraging and enlightening in an increasingly chaotic world. I have with me today my co-host, Michael. Greetings, Trey. Thank you. Absolutely. And Dr. Cornelis Van Dam and Dr. Jeff Tompkins. Thank you all so much for being here today. Thank you. All right. Uh, Special guest of honor, uh, Dr. Cornelis Van Dam. Can you please uh, tell us a little bit about who you are? I was born in the Netherlands in 1946. I studied to become a minister of the word. That had been my long-held desire as, as a young man. After uh, graduating from university and spending a year at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, and then seminary education in Hamilton, I was ordained. I spent 10 years in the ministry. During that time, I continued my Old Testament studies, got a Master of Theology degree from uh, University of Toronto, and then I got my doctorate later on in Kampen, the Netherlands, which has a university that is solely dedicated to theology. I've been a professor for 30 years teaching Old Testament subjects, and uh, I've been retired now for 12 years. Back in high school, I first read Henry Morris and John Whitcomb's The Genesis Flood. It's had an enormous influence on my life, so I'm delighted to have been able to visit the Institute for Creation Research now and to be a participant in this uh, podcast. Absolutely. Well, we're glad to have you. Uh, It's very clear that even though you're retired, that you're not really retired because you're still doing stuff like this. So uh, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Our topic at hand today is essentially uh, the historicity of scripture, the historicity of the Old Testament, Uh, particularly Genesis. So we know that uh, here at ICR, um, there are people who will try to, uh, I guess, rationalize the Bible, try to make uh, the early books of the Bible seem like some sort of mytho history or something like that. Uh, And this is really increased uh, with, you know, the evolutionary theory uh, and even a lot of believers are like uh, interpreting uh, the book of Genesis in a way that is, they're adding things in there that aren't in there. Um, So I think that currently, especially among theologians, there's like a, a push to view Genesis through the lens of like the ancient culture in which it was written or something like that. Um, where does this push come from? Why is there such a such a drive to view Genesis or the Bible as a whole, really, but specifically Genesis? Why is there this drive to view it as some sort of mytho history? I think you need to go back to the Enlightenment, the 18th, 19th century. And what happened with the Enlightenment was that basically human reason was put above everything else. So if you can't reason it out, if you can't prove something, it just isn't true. Mm. So with Genesis, you look at creation and mainstream science says this is what happened. 
and uh, that's the way it is. So your typical Old Testament scholar is not a scientist. So he kind of buckles down and he says, well, if the scientists say this, it must, must, must be true. Mm-hmm. Forgetting that what's happened is that scripture has become subverted to human reason, to human hypotheses. And that's very sad because there are some well-meaning, relatively conservative Old Testament scholars who I'm sure love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they feel pressured by mainstream science to say, well, you gotta take Genesis symbolically or theologically and maintain theistic evolution. So that is a very, very regrettable uh, development. And it's even spreading, I think, in our day. And that was one of the reasons why I, I wrote the book I did in the beginning. The only solution to that is to reaffirm the priority of scripture Uh, the only person who was there in the beginning was God himself, the creator. So he knows what he's talking about. The last hundred years or 200 years, there's been a lot of discoveries, ancient Near Eastern texts. Now it's really interesting that the most well-equipped scholars who study Assyriology and the Babylonian texts, they have said there is no direct connection between the Babylonian texts and Genesis. What we have in Genesis ultimately is a recollection or in the ancient myths, what we have in the ancient myths is a recollection of fragments of the true memory of God's acts as first related to Adam and Eve and successive generations. Now, there are Old Testament scholars who try to use the Old Testament uh, or the myths to explain the Old Testament, but it's it's not a very good road to run down because eventually end up subverting the Old Testament text to the current hypotheses on the so-called myths, the creation myths of the ancient world. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Tompkins, do you have uh, uh, any other anything to add to that uh, in regard to why this is gaining steam right now? Well, one of my pet peeves is that these these people that do compromise on Genesis, theologians and Christian pastors and so forth, they think that evolution is science. Evolution is just an idea that really <laughs> is not proven by science. We don't see creatures evolving now or morphing into other things. Uh, in the fossil record, we we do not see transitional forms of fundamentally, you know, different types of creatures morphing into to other types of creatures, and so it's it's a very speculative idea. It's not science like applied science, where we, you know, study electrical engineering or agronomy or, or things like that, where we develop systems um, using science that are applied. Evolution is highly theoretical. It is not equivalent with the word science. Mm. And so I see a lot of this that, uh, you know, people are caving into evolution thinking that it's somehow science. And of course, that's why we exist at, at ICR is to show that science uh, supports the scriptures and not evolution. What we're talking about obviously impacts believers' faith in 
the God they say that saved them, but also we would say created them. So this seems like you're saying could fall apart if you say Genesis is not history. Then that calls into question the rest of the Bible. Is the Bible from start to finish, what we have in our hands or on our phones or iPads, is it authoritative truly? And how can we know that? Well, the Bible says that it's only if we have faith, if we believe the scriptures, that we're going to benefit from the scriptures. And um, creation, you believe it. You cannot prove it. It's, you have to accept the word of authority of, of, of scripture. So what the, the problem is that the people who are pushing theistic evolution, they eventually come to a real tension because if this part of the Bible is not really saying what it seems to say, then what about the rest? Because Genesis is one continuous narrative. Genesis 1 and follows Genesis 2, 3, 4. In no place is there a boundary that says, okay, now we're into real history. It just runs continually. And the whole book of Genesis is structured on the so-called Toledoth. These are the generations of. So, for example, you have the generations of Terah, and then the history of Abraham follows. So it's a one continual narrative. And if you start to doubt the historicity of Genesis 1, you can start doubting the historicity of the rest. And that's exactly what has happened. So scholars in the Old Testament have made a distinction now between histori and geschichte, two German terms. Histori is what we can confirm by archaeology, by science, to be true. Geschichte is what the Israelites thought was true. So when Israel was at Mount Sinai and they heard God speaking, that's considered geschichte. That really didn't happen the thunder on top of the mountain, the Israelites interpreted it as being the voice of God, you know, but it was not really God speaking. So they make that distinction between history that can be verified by modern scholarship and history that is basically the product of the mind of the Israelites or believers. And so when you get into that kind of a situation, where do you put the resurrection? Because you cannot prove the resurrection either. So on the basis of those same presuppositions, you're going to have to reject the resurrection. And you know, the sad thing is that people like Darwin, Richard Dawkins, they lost their faith because of this. And Howard Van Til, Christian foreign person, you know, lost his faith ultimately. Mm. The tension becomes unbearable because we have been equipped with reason and if you apply that criteria to one part of scripture, you gotta apply it to the rest. And so the apostle John says, you know, just believe like children, accept in faith mm -hmm. the word of God. And in Hebrews it says, you know, the, the world was created and we know it by faith, out of nothing. Mm -hmm. So we have to believe it. We can't prove it. Right. You had mentioned a continuing narrative in Genesis. So question for y'all, like I I feel like I've heard people say that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are um, not talking about the same account of creation. What do you say to that? Is, is it a different perspective? Is it um, is there a gap in time? Like what what's going on in between Genesis 1 and when you get to Genesis 2? Okay, Genesis 1 gives the history of 
creation, day one, day two, right through. Genesis 2 starts with, this is the narrative, this is the history of heaven and earth and so on. In other words, what follows is what happened, what resulted from the creation of the world. And of course, the huge thing that happened is the fall into sin and the need for redemption. But the narrative continues from there on in. So starting in Genesis 2, verse 4, you get the results of God's creation work. So they're not, it's not a double creation account. Genesis 1, the creation account, Genesis 2 and following, the consequences of what happened after the creation. Why, why is there the claim that it is, a, like, where does that idea come from? Are, is it, are they just making it up? Uh, I mean, that seems to be the way a lot of people do things, <laughs> but yeah. Evolution. Well, oh. the, the, the way that works is they, there are sources, imagined sources for different parts of Genesis. So they say Genesis 1 is one source, the priestly source, and then Genesis 2 is the Yahweh source. Hmm. So they, they have an imagined history of Genesis as they think it was written, purely speculative, uh, but that's why they have this two creation account idea. Okay. So y'all are both men of knowledge, both scholars. Y'all y'all have a lot of knowledge, a lot more than me. So uh, this question Same. is for those with a lot of knowledge, particularly modern knowledge. Uh, it's yeah. <laughs> whichever one of y'all. Uh, so there is this idea of everything that is historical needs to be interpreted in the light of like what we know today or like what we've dug up, what we've understood, what we've uh, done in the lab, etc. How does redefining or defining in general scripture from like a modern lens, how does defining it, uh, how does it diminish it? How does, uh, what is the problem with that? What is the problem with taking what we've, what we think we know today or what we know, uh, and, and viewing the Bible through that lens? Well, I think, you know, in, in modern science, we're understanding, especially in biology, that everything is a system of subsystems. So that's where we get this term systems biology. And so really the entire universe is a system of subsystems. And of course, even the planet Earth is a system of subsystems and they're all interconnected. And so when I look at the creation week through a modern lens of systems-based research, that's what we see in the creation week. Everything had to be put together very quickly in one week. It's just like when you have a car on an assembly line, what good is a car that's that's half made mm. or a washing machine or a computer that's half made. And so the entire universe as a, is a system of subsystems uh, created by God who engineered it all, an omnipotent creator, had to be put together very quickly all at once. And so through a modern lens of science, the creation week, you know, makes perfect sense. But not if you're looking at it through, I guess, the, as you mentioned before, like the evolutionary theory. Well, to think, yeah. yeah, to think that it, it just evolved bit by bit over billions of years, it, it doesn't even make sense uh, scientifically when you really think about it. I mean, it really yeah. doesn't. Yeah. I mean, you have to think in a, in a systems-based engineering mentality. And when you do that, the Bible makes perfect sense. 
So it makes perfect sense in life. Oh, absolutely. True science as opposed to the imagined historical whatever. Exactly. Okay. Well, and you look at the Hebrew grammar as well. You know, there are five consecutives, which is a, a... basically tells you it's historical narrative um you see the creation week is identified each day by you know morning and evening uh then you have ordinal numbers the first day the second day and so god made it all very clear what was going on and then when we apply this idea of a systems-based approach to how the world you know really works it it makes perfect sense Mm. and it fits in with the hebrew text yeah you mentioned it's clear and i think is it right to say perspicuity of scripture clarity of scripture what does that mean and if it's so clear can i mean as believers if we pick up the bible we're going to understand it we have the holy spirit in us but what about the average person on the street who doesn't believe is the bible clear to them as well thoughts i think the bible is quite clear um Everybody on the street can understand that you have one day, something happened. You have a second day, something happened. Third day, something happened. So it's very clear. Now, that doesn't mean that what God is telling us is exhaustive. He's not accommodating the truth, but he's accommodating the manner of telling us what transpired. And we will never figure that out uh, because he spoke and it came into being. So. We have to accept God's word for it. And he spoke so plainly that people living in the days of Abraham could understand and people living in the 21st century can understand because it's plain household language and it's all we need to know. And That's great. You know, people need to realize we're finite beings and we're very limited You know what we can know and understand. And, and God is... is is infinite you know he has perfect knowledge and perfect power and, and who are we you know we're, we're so limited as humans and, and I think we just need to trust God's Word and because it's true and yes science does support it but we ultimately have to put God's Word as as first place in our lives it was actually when you were saying that, and then you kind of touched on this, uh, it's almost presumptuous that we would uh, even try to say, God didn't really know what he was talking about. Let me tell you what (laughs) he really means. Uh, That (laughs) that gives me goosebumps. Um, Yeah, we have to be humble. Yeah. Um, So I've also heard that, you know, the Bible is contradictory in places, uh, and I'm not talking about there there are errors in translation and stuff like that. But people, I've heard people say like, "Oh, well, this can't be true because this in Genesis happened, or this can't be true because this happened." Well, is it possible for the Bible to contradict itself? No, God does not lie, and. If there is a problem that we don't understand, sometimes with numbers, then we have to compare scripture with scripture and we have to do research into language and we have to simply start from the premise that God does not lie. His word is true and work from there. And sometimes it can be that there are problems that we can't solve. Uh, It's a very, very rare thing, but it might be a copy error. 
the Word of God is true, and we accept it as such, and we work from that premise. And we don't fragment and say, this is source so-and-so, source so, all these different sources, and no, 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 it's one Word of God. Well, I have a comment um, on, the, on the scripture, you know, being authoritative, and you know, the Bible authenticates itself. And in fact, 27% of the scripture is prophecy. Much of that was fulfilled when Jesus Christ came. In fact, Genesis 3.15, the first prophecy talking about the Messiah coming was in the early chapters of Genesis. And so you have all these prophecies um, in the Old Testament that are authenticated and that have come true in many ways. Some have not yet, but many prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and his earthly ministry his death and burial and resurrection were completely fulfilled. And so it's a supernatural book. And so the Bible really authenticates itself. And that's a whole other podcast right. <laughs> to talk about that. But um, but I think that's a that's an important thing to bring up with people that question, you know, is the Bible really God's word? Because you can show that the Bible is absolutely amazing. You know, it really, it really authenticates itself when you think about all these different parts of the scripture written by different authors but yet god you know through the holy spirit was moving through these people i mean the continuity of the entire bible is is supernatural it's, it's absolutely amazing and so you don't have that with any other you know set of of books and so it truly is supernatural it's it's god's word absolutely well so we do have these, uh, back to like the mytho history kind of idea. We do have these like Near Eastern accounts. I mean, I've, I've heard like, oh, Noah's flood is just the Epic of Gilgamesh and stuff like that. And so like there is, I imagine, a place for archeology span and like ancient Near East. Like there, there is, they exist for a reason, right? Um, so what are the roles of ancient Near Eastern uh, historical or mytho-historical accounts, uh, archeological finds? What are their roles in our lives then as believers? Well, they can be very helpful for understanding parts of the Old Testament. And we are in a happy position to have all kinds of uh, data available. Tablets that have been found, inscriptions that have been found, they've all been collated. And quite often, they're very helpful. Um, we don't need reaffirmation, but sometimes it is very interesting. So some of the material from uh, Nineveh has underlined exactly what happened in the mm. Old Testament, the same account from two different perspectives. Uh, the Lakish letters, for example, uh, written in the time of the siege of Jerusalem, well, they corroborate exactly with scripture. So they're a nice bonus, you know, when uh, we see that. And in terms of things like the Gilgamesh epic and the flood stories that you find, it's just a reaffirmation that something huge happened and all the descendants of Noah knew about it. And it's come down in bastardized or incorrect form, but the fact that there's that memory uh, is attested in the ancient Near East. So the ancient Near Eastern disciplines are exciting, but they serve a supplementary role in helping to understand scripture and reinforcing certain truths of scripture. But we should never 
place their testimony above Scripture. Scripture is authoritative. The rest is bonus collaboration or other witnesses to the events that are recorded. What place um, do like apocryphal books or like the Book of Enoch or other books like that, what place does that have for a Christian? Should we avoid them completely? Is there Are there truths found in those that are corroborative evidence? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm a Reformed believer, and in the Reformed Confessions, the Belgic Confession, it says that the Apocrypha are useful for teaching, so you can read them, but they are not the Word of God. Short and sweet answer. Yeah, there Dr. you go. Tompkins, There's your answer. You yeah. Amen. Amen. There you go. Perfect. There you go. <laughs> Love to hear. I that. went off script. I'm yeah, sorry. No, that's great. That's a very good question. I, I actually, there, I, I've had some people ask me that, and I'm like, I don't actually, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what to what to say to sure. that. Um, in terms, of, you mentioned ancient Near Eastern accounts, archaeology. What about scientific theories? Any other thing you want to add in terms of um, what role does science play? I mean. I guess from our perspective, we would say that it helps us affirm what we already read. It doesn't, like what you're saying, doesn't take the place above Scripture. But I guess, yeah, what are your, what are your thoughts, Dr. Tompkins, about science's role? Well, yeah, like I said before, you have to make a distinction between applied science, where you're, you're actually using science to, to create a, a new computer system or a new car or something like that, or theoretical science, which is where evolution mm-hmm. rests. It's, it's purely theoretical, and it still is. And in fact... There's a huge division now in the biological research community where you have these evolutionists that are basically calling uh, what they're what they're moving into a third way or they need an extended mm. evolutionary synthesis because they realize that mutation selection, that whole neo-Darwinian paradigm is is a failure. There's no data really to, to support it. But they claim, um, instead of becoming creationists like us, that they just need more data. <laughs> so, and a few more million years to. And make I think the more the more data they get, the more they're going to realize yes. that uh, that there is a creator. But I, I think science can be used to to show or, or to support the the authenticity of Genesis. Um, but but you know, Scripture takes precedence over so-called science, whether it's applied or, or theoretical. Yeah, I mean, we would hope that science has a and place. We can, and we can confidently say uh, here at, at ICR that science completely supports the scriptures. Uh, not only the, the uh, importance of creation, but the global flood, uh, the dispersion from the Tower of Babel, which was very important, you know, genetically to, to show us, you know, where all the various people groups come from. Uh, the global flood tells us why we have billions of dead buried things all over the earth and why we have all these these layers of flood-based rock that literally cover the entire earth and so i think it's an exciting time to to be a creationist and to be talking about genesis all right so scripture is authoritative why then um in line with its authority, why is it so important to just take it as it's written? Why is it so important to just take it as it is like clearly laid out? Uh, because there are so many people who uh, like, I guess, spiritualize it. Um, and they're like, well, this means this. And then people will say, well, there's a lot of different interpretations for this. So it could just mean X, Y, Z, right? Why is it so important to just take it 
as it's words, like as it's written. There's a great danger of Gnosticism, whereby the specialist knows, but you poor lay people, you don't have a clue. Mm. And it's that kind of arrogance that you're starting to see in some Old Testament scholars who say, well, if you only knew more about the ancient Near East, then you would know that create only means to give a function to something that's already there. Mm. It doesn't mean to bring it into existence. You can't do that. Because then you really lead into some some strange yeah. some strange pathways there. Sounds like we need another Reformation, right? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, that's the that was the whole basis of the Reformation. You know, we don't need a, a high priest or a priest to explain the mm-hmm. scriptures to us. We can go to the Bible ourselves and and, and read it, and it's quite mm-hmm. clear what we need to do to get saved, mm-hmm. yeah. place our faith in Christ, mm-hmm. and what He did for us, atoning uh, for our sins. That's that's actually very interesting. And that leads into the whole issue of a literal Adam, which I think is, is directly Tied connected to, to this yeah. whole, and we did a podcast on that yes, mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, I was just like, it is, it is so strange to me. I just put two and two together of like the whole, hey, you need someone else to interpret scripture for you. Like, right. mm-hmm. like why is that a thing that's, that's coming back? We, we already did this yeah. once. Let's not do it again. <laughs> Let's go back to Egypt. No, oh, no, no. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, that's, yeah that, was kind of, that was kind of mind-blowing to me. I was just like, what? Oh, yeah, There's our right. truth bomb yeah. for today. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that, <laughs> that's it. actually what's happening now in the, the Old Testament mm-hmm. community is that these so-called high priests or scholars are telling us we need to, to go to them, and they, they're the experts in, in ancient uh Middle Eastern culture, and they they can tell us what the Bible really means. In other words, you can't read it for yourself, even though it's quite plain what it means if you do. Yeah. And so, yeah, they're putting themselves in these positions where where uh, it's very gnostic if, if you mm. think about it. Yeah. And it's it's been a problem since the early days of the church. You know, there were uh, individuals that that tried to allegorize much of Scripture in the early church, and it just led to gnostic heresy. And I think that's mm-hmm. what we're starting to see again, or, or maybe even seeing it actually. And there's a lot of double talk because a scholar will say, "I believe that the Bible is inspired and fallible word of God," mm. but that's not the issue. We have to know what the author intended to say. Mm. That is authoritative. So you bypass the text and you use what you imagine. The original author meant, and that becomes authoritative. So it's double speak. So to the supporting community in the evangelical church, oh, sounds good. He says the Bible is inspired word of God. But if you read line B, it says that what's authoritative is the author's intention and in communicating what he puts in the text. Mm-hmm. Well. I'm going to be honest, after talking to y'all uh, about the whole Gnosticism and the, the high priests who are telling us what to believe, I'm getting a little stressed out. Uh, so, uh, but uh, I, I just, uh, I know that you, you wrote a book, uh, Dr. Van Dam. And uh, so I just, I'd like to chat with you a little bit about your research that you've done on the topic. Um, um, how, what did that look like? What what is what is your main thrust there? The main thrust of the book is um, 
Well, first of all, I see a danger of a growing acceptance of theistic evolution. I think it's a great danger to the church. So, I realize that there are many evangelical scholars who affirm the trustworthiness of Scripture, who affirm the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, nevertheless accept theistic evolution. And in the introduction to my book, I ask for a dialogue. Here's my contribution. Interact with it. Um, so I think we need to discuss this among the conservative, Bible-affirming segment of scholarship. Because it's that segment of scholarship that is really leading the church astray by accepting theistic evolution. And biologos, of course, is a huge problem in this respect. So that was one of my main motivations for, for writing the book. Secondly, I've always been very interested in the topic uh, since the days I first read Genesis Flood. So it's kind of grown on me. And in teaching at the seminary, I also did a segment on Genesis. So I thought it's good to get it out. And maybe we can start a discussion. It hasn't happened yet, but maybe it'll happen in the future. We'll see. Yeah. Dr. Tompkins, do you have any anything to add along those lines? Yeah, I've kind of noticed... Um, a very recalcitrant attitude among theistic evolutionists. They, they're really dug in, uh, and they—it's they, <laughs> a difficult crowd to to get through to. I think you know if, if we can get through to church members and lay people, that's great. And if we can make some inroads uh, with these academics and get some to change their minds, that'd be great. But it, it's a Tough road to hoe, I think, but we need to get the truth out there, regardless. What do you? Maybe, maybe this is a little beside the point, but what do you do when people say, "Oh, it doesn't matter. You can still be saved and believe this, so it's not important. So just ignore it." Like I've gotten mm -hmm. that before. They're like, "It's just not important. I'm going to continue just to believe in theistic evolution, and I don't even want to broach the topic." How do you deal mm -hmm. with people like that? Well, you feel sorry for them. But you also tell them that ultimately you're going to have to res resolve the tension because there's a tension in negating one part of Scripture and saying it's not historical and accepting an equally miraculous part of Scripture as historical. And the yeah. other thing is that Scripture talks about our regeneration as Christians and new creation. So the same power of God that brought the world into being is necessary to change our stubborn hearts mm -hmm. into a heart that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you have experienced a conversion, then you should also allow the Lord to impress on you that he created everything as well. He made you a new creation, but he also at the beginning of time made everything of nothing. I'm really glad that God doesn't use some sort of weird evolutionary process to regenerate us internally. <laughs> but that sounds very painful. It would take far too long. We wouldn't be alive. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, take and, millions of years. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we, we're gone. we don't live that long. <laughs> uh, but I think yeah, that's that's a great note. And yeah. if we would all have those that open heart to you know to ask the Lord, is there something that I, I've got wrong that I need to change. Like that humility. I think you mentioned that before too. That's something we're called to be humble, that God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And we we don't know everything. We'll never know everything, everything. But 
we'll get to learn it someday. Well, and the thing is that God repeatedly stresses that it's creation through the Word. And the Word is our Savior. Now, how does that work? We have no idea what happened when God created everything from nothing. We have no idea how that took mm -hmm. place. It so. would have been really cool to see, but nobody was there. Just one. <laughs> just one. Just, yeah, well, just yeah. one was there. Just yes. one. No, sorry. No yeah. human individual That's was right. there. All right. So for the Christian out there who does have a clear understanding of the Bible and Genesis, and they're like, oh, this means what it says it means. Um, how, how would one combat or defend against those types of worldviews or interpretations that downplay or uh, even just diminish completely the authority and historicity of scripture? How, how do you fight against that? You pray for repentance and renewal of the heart. Van Til, uh, I was a student of his, and he said the only way to approach an unbeliever is to hit him with a sledgehammer, figuratively speaking. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I was like, it's going, it goes in some moral Not code. with wet spaghetti, <laughs> right. he would add. <laughs> in other words, what he meant was, according to Romans 1, verse 19, the evidence for God's existence is everywhere, and since we're created after God's image, everyone knows in his heart that God exists. The fact that we have a conscience and innately know good and evil in a very rudimentary sense shows that we've been created by the judge of all the earth. And so Fantel always said, don't beat around the bushes, just say, this is what scripture says and you must accept it because there's no other way. I can't prove scripture. I can't make scripture attractive for you because the cross is a stumbling block. You have to accept it in faith. That's the only way. Yeah. And um, it's kind of a rough message because there's a lot of so-called how to help your neighbor convert. But at the end of the day, it's a matter of going to Christ and, and asking for forgiveness and a new heart. We okay. can't convert anybody. Yeah. We yeah. cannot convert We're anybody. We're not the Holy Spirit, but go back and pray. That's what you're right. Pray yeah. and share the word. Any yeah. thoughts, Dr. Well, Jones? that's my testimony. I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I was unchurched. My father was a huge fan of Carl Sagan, <laughs> the, the famous uh, astronomer who was an atheist. And, uh, but I knew in my heart there was a God. And in high school, uh, I was doing all the typical bad stuff that high school kids do in the Pacific Northwest. But I just got fed up with it. I knew there was a God, and, and that's clear. Everyone inherently knows that there is a God. They're held, held accountable for that, actually, if you read Romans chapter 1. So I cried out, God, if you're out there, please do something. And he did. And so a few months later, I was at Washington State University. I had a Christian roommate. And he shared the gospel with me, and I got, I got saved. So, yeah, I love that, the way how you said that, because that's, that's my background. I inherently knew there was a creator, there was a God, without a doubt. Now, there's no such thing as an atheist, right? Deep down, we all know. Well, uh, any closing thoughts uh, from either of y'all today? I'm very happy to have been here, and uh, I've followed the work of ICR for many, many years, and it's the first time I'm on your premises, so thank you for having me. Um, 
I'm also encouraged by the fact that research is being done, and I think research is so vitally important. We don't have to prove the Bible, but the more that science researches, I'm sure the more they will find their thoughts coalescing, agreeing with what we do know of Scripture, of the beginning, and especially of the flood. So thank you. Absolutely. Thank, thank you, you for, for coming being down. here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Tompkins? No, exactly. Yes. I, I, I agree. Amen. It's been a, amen. <laughs> it's amen. Second, it's been yes. a great interview. Yeah, yeah. That'll, that'll, that'll preach, right? All right. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Uh, we've really enjoyed having you on the show. And thank you again, Dr. Tompkins, for being here. And you also, Michael. Thank I appreciate that. Thank you, Trey. <laughs> all right. And thank you, all of our listeners and viewers, uh, for joining us today. As a reminder, please like, subscribe, share this video with your friends. And uh, we'll see you next time on creation.live.